You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, my name is Mark Inetponais, and I'm the Professor of Material Science and Surf Engineering at the University of Wollongong. More important, I'm the co-host for Lab Notes. I'm even more excited to introduce my guest, Patricia Davidson, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Wollongong. Trish was born in Canberra. She's a nurse by training and her education included the universities of Wollongong and Newcastle in Australia. She has worked in Australia and in the US at Johns Hopkins University, the number one school of nursing in the US. Trish is a global leader in nursing and has received widespread recognition for her dedication to and passion for healthcare. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Trish. She has a warm personality and a unique perspective on research, education, mentoring, and healthcare. Please join me for this fascinating conversation with my guest, Trish Davidson, the Vice Chancellor of the University of Wollongong. Enjoy. G'day, Trish. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. Welcome to Lab Notes, and thank you for being my guest. Let me start with a Straightforward question. Can you briefly describe where you grew up and who your role models were? Wow, that's a great question. So I grew up in Canberra. I was born in 1957, a very long time ago for many of the young people listening. Mm -hmm. And I was born in Canberra, and I was actually one of the first generation to be born in Canberra. So Mark, you're new to Australia, but the long history. So basically... um, Melbourne and Sydney couldn't decide what, who was going to be the capital, so they picked a cow paddock in the middle, and that was Canberra. So I don't think Canberra was much more than a cow paddock <laughs> when I grew up. Um, and so my role models, look, that's really interesting. You know, I, I just found Canberra to be stifling, and I just couldn't wait to get out. But of course, you know, I look back and some of the people that I didn't think were role models at the time but were highly influential were my teachers at school, um, particularly uh, the women who, when you think back, sort of in the 60s, were the women of really pushing the boundaries and they really pushed all of us to excel and achieve. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've, I've read about the history of Canberra. It's really quite fascinating. <laughs> it's politics. It's a lot of politics. What made you decide to come back to Wollongong? Well, you know, I really was in the US and I always wanted, always knew I was coming home because it's Australian and I've got my family here. And, you know, as I said, you know, I'm 65 years of age and so, you know, family becomes more important and your children. And, you know, I was looking for a job. I mean, why not looking? I was open. I was sort of in the, you know, eight years and a 10-year contract. And, you know, I got offers from quite a few places. But when I got Wollongong, I thought, oh, um, that's that's different. I didn't want to go and, and live in Brisbane or Melbourne or Perth. Um, Wollongong seemed like home. 
and I, I made a really smart move of not selling our Ostermere house. So it was about it was really coming <laughs> home. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. What surprised you about the University of Wollongong? Well, it had grown a lot since I was here in the in the late seventies, eighties. Um, I think the beauty of the campus, um, just so different. My office at Johns Hopkins was in East Baltimore on the medical precinct and literally my office looked to the helicopter pad and there were sirens all the time. So what really struck me was the beauty of the campus, the peace and the tranquility and the space. <laughs> yeah, that's something we're really blessed with. I, I once introduced the speaker and said, this person is from John Hopkins University. Oh. And then he said, you know, my name is such and such. I'm from John's. And he really articulated. So you were at John's. I was Hopkins at John's Hopkins. For, for, for a while. What was the, the most valuable lesson you learned at John's? Because I, just... I keep pronouncing yes. So um, the power of science and innovation, teamwork and collaboration. And humility. Without a word of a lie, sometimes I would go to dinners and there would be four Nobel Prize winners at a table. But you could never meet more humble, more uh, collaborative people. And you know, you hear so many negative things about the US, particularly the health system. Um, but you know, as a dean, you kind of become a bit of the mother or the parent figure, mother-father in, in the school. And so whenever there was a medical disaster, I would call anybody and they would, would take care of that person, you know, accelerate appointments, do anything. So it's just such a phenomenal place. It's really hard to describe, but you can see why there's so many medical breakthroughs there. Yeah, it's, it looks like a cool place. Very cool. Now, you, you did um, a few degrees in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 20s. You have a, a Bachelor of Arts, a Master's of Education, and, and a PhD. And two of them were here in Wollongong, yeah. one in Newcastle. What made you come back for more education? So, Gersel, I, uh, Gersel, Mark, we look I, alike. No, no, no. I don't. It's that, <laughs> we talk I was, about Gersel. No, we talk about this and the engineering, and that's what two hours sleep will do. They get a bit of a crossfire. So, um, you know, the formative experiences, and, and like now I have, you know, that's one thing about getting old. You're very uh, willing to share your frailties and challenges. So, um, my mother died when I was in. 16 in my last year of high school and that was devastating for our whole family um, It was devastating for many of the reasons one thing Canberra being isolated uh, no family Apart from the fact of losing your mother and so I went to ANU and I dropped out after the first year <clears throat> The family dynamics were a little bit tricky as well as many people who may be listening are for migrants families. And my father was Lebanese and all, although Australian, you know, he'd grown up in that culture. And when my mother died and I was the eldest girl, he, I think he had visions of 
what I should be doing. And basically, it was a family in turmoil. Everyone was grieving. So, you know, I had a fight with him and walked out of home and went to be with my then boyfriend. And in many ways, I was really proud and didn't want to come. So I married that guy and um, it didn't work out. But he is who I moved to Wollongong with. So um, when I dropped out of uni, I, which I think is great for everyone to hear, no one's careers are linear. You know, no. some, some people are, but, but not mine. Um, and when I dropped out of uni, I was waitressing for a few years and I really found that was not going to be my life's work. And, and then I met someone who was going nursing and there was clearly when my mother was dying, there were things that exposed me to nursing. I saw nurses work. I was in awe and actually jealous. Now I look back that they could give my mother comfort, which I couldn't. And so I thought, oh, nursing, I'll give that a go. And for the first day, I loved it. But also nursing in those days was a diploma pro program in the, and I was training at Wollongong Hospital. And although it was very stimulating, um, it was a real collision. Because, you know, I was at ANU in the 70s. And Wollongong at that time was so much more conservative. And so I was at this really vibrant university campus and I come into this very traditional kind of, basically at that stage, actually now I remember the reason I got married. The reason I got married was if you weren't married, you had to live in the nurse's home. So, so I thought, oh, I want to do something a little bit more, I want to stretch me. So that's when I was actually studying nursing diploma that I enrolled at Wollongong. I think part of it was what also that I'd, um, you know, regretted dropping out of uni and they, maybe they're still looking for me because it's different. It was different in those days. You just didn't turn up and no one followed up and said, do you need any help? Do you need counselling? You know, that was not the case. And so then I did my BA and, um, and became very interested in education, particularly clinical education. Then I did a master's after that. And in between, did you did you work or? Oh yeah, I always work. Well, sorry, That's, yeah, you obviously work. No, 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 no. Um, nursing is a fabulous career. So all of that time, I worked, and um, and after I did my uh, sort of general nursing training at Wollongong Hospital, I worked in Sydney. I did critical care qualification at St Vincent's. So always worked. So, you know, in a way, I often say to at a Johns Hopkins event, mm. and as you. No, in many of those elite institutions, everybody has an idea of what you should be. And there was this big national conference, and I had the great joy of being able to stand up and say, look, um, I'm a diploma nurse. I did my PhD part-time. I didn't do a postdoc, and I ended up being the dean of the number one school of nursing. So, yeah, I always worked. And um, and that's the great joy of being a nurse. You can work any t anywhere, any time, any place, and it's it was a very family friendly profession when my kids were little. But going back to to study is hard if you're working. It is, but you know maybe I'm pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> and I love learning, and um, I always found it stimulating. Yeah, it wasn't. 
It's like everything in life. If, if you enjoy it, it's not a chore. It's what gets you up at, out of bed in the morning. And only makes you having two hours of sleep, I guess. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I want to follow on about the learning because I, I looked up your, your publication record and it's impressive. Thank you, Mark. I've, I've had a look. So on Scopus, which is one of our main databases, you have an H-index of 54. On Google Scholar, it's 78. So for people that don't know what this is listening, this is one of our key performance indicators. It means you have 54 publications that each have been cited more than 54 times. That's a lot. You also have about 650 publications and 18,000 citations. And then when I looked how many papers you've co-authored this year, I think I had to hang on to my chair because it was 37 on Google Scholars. And it's the 7th of June as we're recording this. <laughs> that is phenomenal. So the, the question I have is, what, what do you most enjoy about the publication process? Well, firstly, I like writing. So I love writing. I like language. And why I have so many publications is that I work with so many phenomenal students. Um, and I love mentoring. And, you know, that's been the secret to my success and surround yourself with people that have got different skills and and I think writing in teams um, I work in teams and you know they, they'll leave the discussion bit to me some people say it's the BS section Trish is good at that <laughs> BS section I like that <laughs> uh, whereas other of my colleagues you know give them give them the data analysis and then but they, they do the analysis think what does this mean where does it fit um, so yeah, uh, and then the other thing is, I really believe if you're writing about it, you're part of the solution. And you know, I've never been hung up. I mean, of course, I've had one New England Journal of Medicine publication, and I think I was author 47. So I don't think that really counts. But I've never been so, I always try and publish in the best journals, but I always figure it if it's not on my computer and someone is actually reading it, it's, it's going to make a difference to the things that I care about. So that is motivating to write. It's like Twitter. It's like social media. Just like you're posting on LinkedIn about the things that you care about. Yeah. It motivates and inspires other people. Because if you're just ruminating and thinking about it and writing to yourself, you're not going to make a difference or change the world. Now you have to tell people about it, otherwise nobody knows it. If you, if you go keep it to yourself, and there's many examples in the past where people kept manuscripts for 20 years before they actually, before yeah. they published it. And then, you know, good mentorship along the, the way. You know, I worked for Linda Christensen. She was a deputy vice chancellor, and I was at Curtin University, and she talked about maximal publishing units, like make everything count. And I think that's a good thing, you know, I just really try and make everything count. And then the other things for me, I find that I get a lot of clarity through writing. And I, I just think I'm lucky, um, don't ask me for directions, don't ask me to read a map. I'm not um, spatial at all, but, um, you know, writing I enjoy. And the more you write, I think the better you get at it. But reading data and interpreting is, is like writing, reading a map. It's just a different map. <laughs> yeah. 
It's a different bit. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to read you a quote which comes back to what you were saying about mentoring. So for an Australian nurse who was a diploma nurse from Wollongong Hospital to end up being the Dean of Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, it goes to it just goes to show anyone can do anything if you try and you surround yourself with people who support and enable you. That's a very powerful quote. So do you, do you actively seek out mentors? Well, firstly, you know, I'll probably talk to anyone. And then I all, all, always try and surround myself with people that are smarter than me or have different skills. So that's a different form of mentorship. And... I've been fortunate to have some really good mentors and, I, you know, in a way I'm not sure that I always sort them out, but um, the person who's probably really responsible for my career in many ways uh, is a cardiologist, Warren Walsh. Now, we talked about work um, and so when my kids were little, I worked night shift and weekends and when the kids were sort of, man you know, at an age where they could go to um, preschool, as what I call, I got a real job, meaning that I wasn't nocturnal. And I was working at Prince Henry Hospital as a heart failure research nurse. I was working for Warren and I really didn't think he liked me, you know, because he was very, um, you know, the, the stereotypical physician, you know, Navy blazer and, you know, quite stern. And, and I was running his clinics and he wanted to see me one day. And I thought, I really thought, oh, you know, he's going to tell me this isn't working. And he just looked over his glasses and he said to me, you need to go to the American Heart Association meeting. And so, you know, he paid for me to go to America, to the American Heart Association meeting. And that's kind of really what changed my life because it opened up my, idea, my eyes because, you know, I hadn't had that exposure. Wollongong Hospital, as wonderful as it is, it's not like going to Johns Hopkins Hospital where everyone that walks in the door has got their career planned. It was a different time and a different place. So people have been very generous to me and, you know, and I really try and pay it forward. And now I'm at that age where um, wherever I can do something to give people a leg up, I'll, I'll do it. How did you end up at Johns Hopkins? Hopkins. Well, um... I got a call from a headhunter <laughs> and as you know, most people, if you get to a certain level, you get lots of calls and I, I often talk to my colleagues because it can be very unsettling. So what has been the hardest career move you had to make? I think the hardest career move that I ever made was going from Sydney to Baltimore, from Australia to the US. Um, it was a very interesting time. Uh, firstly, I thought I kind of understood America till I lived there. I thought I understood Americans. Um, and then I thought, no, the, um, then I, when I looked at it, I thought, no, all the people that I know from America are like my scientific colleagues, they're all like me. So I went to the US um, on my own. My, my husband, had, you know, was following. And, I, and when I got there, I was really the president's pick and not everyone wanted me and I was a foreigner so it was a, actually a very good experience um, and Mark you probably understand part of this when you come to another country um, so for the first time in my white privileged middle-class life 
I was alienated and marginalised for a number of reasons. You know, didn't have a credit record. Um, I think, you know, I'd applied for a credit card, couldn't get it. And when I first got my first credit card, it was $500 limit, you know. So, and I had to sit my boards again. I had to go and sit those exams again. So that was very challenging. And also, I was different. And so, what really, um, you know, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. And one of, you know, I'm talking about amazing people and um, mentors. So there's a guy, Harlan Krumholz. If any of you, the, your listeners, want to just Google Harlan, he's a superstar. And I, he's at Yale, and I called him and I said, Oh, Harlan, I'm having a really tough time. I don't think a lot of people want me here. And he said to me, Trish, just walk into that school every day and look so happy people think you're on drugs. That's a great thing to so say. So that's what that. I did. <laughs> so um, I was desperately homesick. Um, it was the same emotions that I had when my mother died of dislocation and just being rudderless. I felt there. But then things got better and it was an experience of a lifetime. But also it was pretty humbling and, and a bit chastening. I think we take our citizenship for granted we take our mobility for granted. We take the fact that we know how to see a GP for granted. Um, I never saw, this is a terrible admission, but I never saw a physician the whole time I was in Baltimore. I just see when I came home to Australia. And part of that was just the complexity of navigating the system. I didn't understand. So, yeah, so a challenging job transition and life transition. You know, I've, I've changed countries six times in my life, including a couple of years in the US. So I know, I know what you mean when you mention about the credit rating. You literally arrive there and you're nobody. You're absolutely <laughs> nobody. Nobody. And, the, and yet you're white and you've yeah. got an education and you can speak English. And you think, how do all those poor people who are black don't speak English, have no education and no money? Life is tough. It's very tough. For some people. So your, your work is focused on cardiac nursing and translational care mm -hmm. with a specific focus on, on underserved populations in a global context. What, what does that mean? It's a very good question. So one of the things about nursing is that you just don't care for the physical, you care for the social, psychological and other dimensions, and I know, I know other professions do that. I know physicians do it. If you ask any health professional, they will do that. But I think the work of nurses is much more intimate and personal, and so you get to understand people. And what sort of had become evident to me that you know, physical care is just a small part. And we now know, in, we don't map the genome, that um, your genetics accounts for maybe 40 to 50% of you know, your um, health or likelihood of ill health. Um, but maybe some studies say up to 60% are related to social determinants of health. So if you can make someone feel happier, if you can increase their physical activity, 
if you can give them a safe place to sleep, if they eat nutritious food, if they can actually afford to take the medicines that are prescribed, if they can actually get to the pharmacy to get the medicines prescribed, um, they have better outcomes. So that's been a lot of what where my work has gone. And, um, and even though we do have um, underserved populations in Australia, it's not nearly the same as in many other countries. But where I've found, you know, my impact, I think, in global health has been supporting researchers in other countries to do that work. Um, education is very empowering. It promotes social mobility, economic productivity. So I've been fortunate enough to look, you know, to do studies in Thailand and Vietnam and many, um, and Lebanon, many countries throughout the world where people don't have access to healthcare to be able to make things better. Yeah, wow. That's very powerful if you support people in other countries. Oh, look, I think it's, you know, Mark, as a teacher, it's like, you know, some people talk about it as your pedigree or your lineage, but you just think from, from where you are and then you have 10 PhD, 10 PhD students and each of those 10 students has another 10 students. And if each of them are tackling a complex problem in your area of field, for you it's in engineering, for me it's in um, healthcare, you can really make a big impact on a, on a society. Yeah, and it keeps an impact that keeps on giving. Yeah, absolutely. If you do it, if you do it right. So we're coming to the end. So let me ask you the, the question that I ask everyone and thank you for an absolutely fascinating chat. Um, are you a good loser or a bad loser when you play games and why? Well, can I tell you, I'm a, in life a bad loser, probably. I like to win, but I'm a nerd. I don't play games. You know, people sit around playing cards. I don't like that. I'm just a bit of a nerd. Um, so what are the things that I lose at that annoy me? Maybe arguments. <laughs> um, tactical decisions, because um, that's another thing. As you get higher in leadership, um, there's no sure decisions. Every decision is a brokered, negotiated, weighed decision. So I don't like making bad decisions and I don't like losing there. Um, so it's really interesting. I'm competitive. I'm like my husband, you know, who would chase a ball bouncing anywhere and I look at him today he's fallen off his bike you know lost half of his you know epidermis um, but yeah but you know I think it's that it's what motivates you and inspires you but it's it's not necessarily about you it's about the idea or the thought yeah great thank you very much Trish thank you for being part of this podcast well, Mark, this is very exciting and I love seeing all your LinkedIn and Twitter posts and all these cool things with surfboards. I don't really understand, but it looks pretty cool. I could fill hours just talking about surfboards. <laughs> it's funny, the other day, um, you know, as the Vice-Chancellor, you get to meet amazing people. And I got together a group of our alums, a bit like, you know, we're planning to do for your surfing lunch. And um, the only common thing between them was maths, computers, and making money out of apps and things. So I thought, I'm going to have these guys for lunch. 
they got off on a house, got on so well, but I tell you, they were talking about stacks, yeah. things. I just didn't understand half the conversation, but it was great to be able to convene them. So if you get a bunch of surfers together, they'll talk about similar things. <laughs> oh, like, thank you. My pleasure, my pleasure. A fascinating conversation with a fascinating person. And I will hand you over to Leo Stevens to finish this episode of Lab Notes. See you next time. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more, in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. Mm.